0: hello and welcome to rule of three a podcast about comedy i'm joel morris I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the Emmy award-winning writer and man, David Quantic. Hello. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joel. Hello, Emmy.
1: Emmy. Did you bring your Emmy with you? No, I didn't, because it's so heavy, it's made of gold. (laughs) <laughs> and Latinum and the crushed skulls of my enemies.
0: Mm. <laughs> that, that especially, Do you provide your enemy skulls and they recycle
1: it? Yeah, it's quite, you just point at people in the street and go, <laughs> they worked on Miranda. And a van comes. Actually, <laughs> you no, know, I know loads of people who worked on Miranda. They're all lovely. It's just the first thing that came into my head that wasn't Ricky Gervais. Oh, God. Okay. We started quickly, didn't we? You, your writing credits are just extraordinary. They're legion, aren't they? There's a lot. I'm very old. I mean, you're not that old.
2: You're not Barry Cryer,
1: no. I sort of I was hoping to become Barry Cryer, but it hasn't quite worked out. I mean, he did warm up for Monty Python. You know, I can't compete with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my first credit was on Spitting Image, and it was a sketch about Ronald Reagan, which is a lot of president. You remember the old days when Ronald Reagan was the devil? It was the worst was, president? He was you the could worst have. president <laughs> you could imagine, because he'd been an actor and he made a joke about Star Wars, which is quite early on. He was ahead of the curve with a good story. Yeah, now, if Donald Trump made a joke about Star Wars, he'd probably call it Star Trek and shoot himself. (laughs) (laughs) Set fire to his own face and run screaming into a petrol factory. (laughs) Shouting, I'm not on fire.
2: Was it the
0: the, the default splitting image gag? The one that really landed with with, uh, President Reagan was the president's brain is missing. Yeah, that was their serial because it was a funny phrase. And you was, look at it now, and he's like this incredible statesman. Actually, compared to Trump, all presidents now are saints. So. They're all really
1: co- It's really interesting now, because every time something happens, you just see a load of presidents laughing at Trump. They're all, they all get together, and then have their pictures <laughs> put on Twitter... And you see them, people you thought were dead, like Roosevelt, come out of the grave. <laughs> and, you know, they're all doing <laughs> selfies together and going, stuff you, Donald Trump.
2: He's a curious phenomenon because, really, nothing he says matters because in a minute he's going to say the opposite. So it's just ext- it's very difficult to keep a, keep a handle on anything, really. It's hard to when react he, to he, has, he has no ideology. He's got no ideas. He's got no core
1: beliefs, really, apart from racism. It's hilarious. It's hilarious because, basically, he's a perfect social media president because, as you say, he just says things. And they don't have to be about anything. He could say, "Flew to the moon yesterday." My poo is made of gold. But he says so many things. Everyone finds something if we really try. We'd find things that we agreed with. You know, he's probably said something like, "Faulty Towers" is a classic example of a two-series <laughs> comedy. Canceled it just the right time, guys. Not even a Christmas special. Cemetery Junction wasn't bad, but too much Ricky. All this stuff, you know. But
2: so, David Quanty, thank you for bringing Donald Trump onto Rule Three. I thought I'd be, be
1: topical. I did some research. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what have you brought on to Rule of Three for us to have a guddle through? I've brought probably one of the best films ever made, and the film that I used to tell everyone was my favourite film when I'd only seen about four films. <laughs> but it's still in my top whatever, five. And it is the nineteen eighty one Terry
0: Gilliam film Time Bandits. Yeah. Brilliant. Can we have a voice going? Time bandits. Oh, a little fact voice. One of those, yeah. We'll get we'll get someone. Who should we get in? We'll get Gina McKee. Gina a little, McKee. A bit so. of voiceover with some facts about it. will pop up like the facts on the chart show.
2: You've written for Gina McKee, haven't you? Did you write any of that Brass Eye sequence that she
1: was in about the um, gay people on in, joining the Navy? She's in the pilot, yeah, and she does a, a brilliant skipping walk. Yes. It's <laughs> just one of those great moments. Yeah, me and Jane Bussman worked on... Did we, I think we worked on the pilot, but it's one of those things where we're sort of like the people who came in after and did some polishing. We seem to work oh, that's an actual script phrase, isn't it? I didn't mean that. Um, we didn't write. I should have just said, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. <laughs> can you do that was a more interesting answer, Can you do then? that
0: writer's thing that we do a lot, which is you don't reply when people say, did you write something on a big team written show? Well, what I found and now, you know that means you didn't, but they listen to it as if you did. Is just, that your joke? Mm. I've discovered now what you do
1: in a Q&A situation is you go, what was interesting about Brass Eye? Is what, <laughs> well, I became sort of bitter and obsessed with credits. What's that phrase? A credit hoover. I became one of those just because I was working on, on certain shows like the day-to-day because there were so many people. The credits are quite awry. The money was fine, mm-hmm. but so I'd get I'd get credited with Stephen Wells on episodes of the day-to-day that I didn't have anything on. <laughs> and for a moment, I had a panic attack with the thick of it One the the brilliant Star Wars analogy that I wrote, my greatest moment, <laughs> and I panicked and thought I didn't get a writing credit on that episode. So I went mad and posted it everywhere and presumably made loads of people hate me for suggesting that I'd written the thick of it single-handed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the two things that writers want are money and credits. Yeah, Ideally, loads of both, but credits are more important in the end because you spend money, but you never spend credits.
2: Very nicely put. Um, the very first thing we ever did was Russ Abbott's 1990 BBC One series. And we went to see the, the quickie that they bought from, for us for 15 quid or something being filmed. And we were sitting in the gallery. And at the end of the record, Russ came up to the gallery to get a clear from the director. And he said, right, I'll just go out and say goodbye to the audience and thank everybody. And Barry Cryer pressed a note into his hand. And Russ went out there and said thank yous. And I said, Barry, what was written on the note? And he showed it to me afterwards and it said, mention the fucking writers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's that thing that comes from the, the pre-associated London script days uh, before sort of Spike Milligan and Johnny Spate Gorton and Simpson became like superstar writers was the idea that stars wrote all their own material and the way you'd sell a joke was you'd go around the back of the Walthamstow Alhambra and meet uh, Max Miller coming out and press a joke into his hand and he'd give you a shilling and never mention it again Sort of where Bob Monkhouse and people came from and that when when Spike Milligan became a star and Johnny Spate became a star and Eric Sykes became a star there was the idea of the the comedy writer and you forget that before then there was no such thing as a comedy writer. They were just funny people, performers. Oh, yeah,
1: they were the same as songwriters. And it was the whole variety thing. There was no real difference between somebody knocking out a tune. I remember I used to live with a bloke called Dave, and I said, I've got a, ske- a sketch um, taken by Spitting Image. He said, you've got the Danny Boone letter. Oh
0: <laughs>
2: mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, Billy Lyra, the Danny Boone letter. But, no, my first experience of seeing a sketch performed was a totally forgotten show called Comedy Wavelength on Channel 4. And it was filmed at the Town and Country Club for some reason in Kentish Town with a huge audience. Wow! I know, it was a terrible mistake. (laughs) And the first sketch I'd written, it was a hilarious sort of mistaken punchline one where somebody was talking about, it sounded like they were talking about the dangers of being a policeman, but the punchline was that they were a fireman. It was a terrible sketch. And all I remember is that two seconds before the punchline, somebody shouted out, he's a fireman. (laughs) Well, and I think it was the opening sketch in the show, so it just was. I brought someone with me because you know, break first rule of comedy never take anyone to a recording if your stuff is in it. No, because your stuff won't be in it or it will be ruined and so on.
0: I was trying to explain to someone how you don't as a writer it's very hard to enjoy a recording. Mm. As a performer you're enjoying the high of being on stage and and that that sort of doctor theater and the adrenaline covers up for your nerves sometimes and also you've got some control over bringing the audience up and dropping them down and if it's going shit you can look grumpy and they might come with you. As an, a writer it's like being strapped into a rocket and you're sort of like trapped I, the worst thing is to be trapped in the audience with other audience members, the best thing, go and hide in the booth or something. So people can't see the look on your face when you're counting the seconds since a laugh or the point at which a joke you argued against gets a huge laugh and you're proved to be an idiot. But it's it's really stressful watching your stuff go out or even watching it in the front room on the TV with members of your family not laughing because you've got no control over it. It's a very weird feeling yeah. to be involved in comedy but have but be behind glass, unable to affect it.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: Joyous to watch it again. I, I Like you, I keep forgetting that it's probably in my top ten films. And watching it again went, you're an idiot. This is You like this way more than you like the third man. Don't be an idiot. And I think, without much argument, it's Terry Gilliam's best film. And the secret thing I want to say in this podcast is it's better than Brazil. It is much better than Brazil. Brazil has things wrong with it, and time-bounders is just great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was seriously disappointed by Brazil because I'm just like, Brazil is sort of the humorous kind of weak. The thrilling moment of having Robert De Niro in it is like, oh, it's Robert De Niro. He's not doing anything interesting. <laughs> the satire is really heavy-handed in Brazil. Oh, rich people have plastic surgery. Oh, the one thing that Brazil gives the world, it gives us two things, actually. It gives us the first Michael Palin is a cunt performance, which, is which he's based a lot of his career on, on just being a total shit, and it's a <laughs> genius <laughs> idea. Mm. And the second thing it gives is it invents that kind of 1984 world of steampunk telephone, of telephone emails and yeah. Yeah. standard trunk dialing. Um, yeah. So the set design is beyond belief, but it's a mess. It's an it's incoherent really rated, film.
0: It's rated by critics. It literally, I always think Brazil, which is a film I quite like, is the definition of a critically acclaimed film. And you can see why you could write down that it's good. Whereas I think with Time Bandits, I can see watching it why you'd write down that it doesn't work or it's picaresque or it's a mess. But you can't write down quite as well why it's absolutely joyously right. Whereas Brazil, you can tick off a tick list of it's satire, it's saying something.
1: One reason I went off Brazil was I interviewed Terry Gilliam. It's one of my favourite moments. It was when Munchausen came out. I went to his house. He had the new Travelling Wilburys album on just (laughs) so he could be as Terry Gilliam as possible. (laughs) He'd just been sent it, you know, with his, all his mates on. And we had a brilliant chat, and I really liked him. He told me he turned down Watchmen because of the deus ex machina ending. He said it was unfilmable, and because the ending was a total deus ex machina, <laughs> which was great, because I'd love to have seen his Watchmen, and I liked the other one. And he, t- he put me off Brazil because he said, yeah, critics don't get the symbolism. What symbolism? That when Sam, the main character played by Jonathan Price, is being chased by a giant samurai, it's Sam, you are... I, You see? God. It's him, and he is it. Uh, so like, well, no one got that because
0: God. it wasn't shown to critics from the puzzler. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's amazing about Time Bandits as well, why it's a brilliant thing. I, I, this is a thing I hadn't done until I lined up the dates, is that it's made while he's raising the money for Brazil. He can't get the money for Brazil, and no one will make it. So in the meantime, he goes, I'll quickly do a fun family film. And there's another film from 1981 that that that's true of, which is Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is made while Spielberg was making the money for E.T., going to get the backing for E.T. And they're two of my favourite films and I love the fact they're made in a hurry because I think that stops the makers making all the mistakes they make when they overthink things. These appear to come straight from the heart to the screen and no one's had enough time to fuck them up. Mm. There's, I think, Palin wrote the script in, was given in two, month. he was given two yeah. months and one of those months he was doing a railway documentary. So wow. it's written in a month. And it just as a writer, you go, oh, I keep forgetting sometimes the fastest thing I write might be the best.
1: I believe that. Right. The reasons I like Time Bandits. One, it came at a moment in my life, 1981, when I wasn't a huge Python fan. They're part of my DNA like everybody else my age. But, you know, the disappointment compared to the excitement they caused amongst my slightly... Because at school, it was always the year above me came in and like, morning, blah, blah, blah. You know. <laughs> I was dreaded to a complaint and you hated them. They were the kids <laughs> who liked Genesis and Monty Python. <laughs> Was they're stuck always, together. Yeah, it was, it was all together and it was all kind of... It was a bit... Old, even though they're only two years older... It was all kind of a bit older generation, but I knew Monty Python were great, and I also, you know, and I also got into Monty Python when John Cleese had left, and it was just Graham Chapman trying to make Douglas Adams funny. Ooh, controversial! <laughs> they weren't very good, were they? Those episodes. But I'd liked, I'd like Rutland a bit. I would love ripping yarns, and then Time Bandits comes, and suddenly it just all seemed to work for me. I hadn't seen, you know, I'd seen Life of Brian. I hadn't really liked it, to be honest. I loved Holy really? Grow. Yeah, I don't yeah. like Life of Brian. Wow! It's, it's, it's again. It's just it's that Python thing of. Yeah it's funny after you've quoted it it's mm. funny from the other side of the poster but so time bandits is like oh that sounds appealing i like the i like children's films i like the premise it's got all the classic Python things it's a history film yeah. it's got John Cleese in it as Robin Hood probably his best role what do he's you do You're just brilliant he's isn't playing he? the
0: Duke of Kent well what, yeah. is what uh, Gilliam One. said said play him as a minor royal who's just walking up the, the line at the Royal variety performance it's that
1: and it's just Cleese's that kind of bitterness and hate in Cleese but yeah and the vile and it goes so well with Gilliam, you know' it's people having their arms wrestled off <laughs> while he's doing this kind of and he's in the the costume is a great joke everyone else <laughs> yeah. is in Gilliam filth that perfect middle-ages yeah. Shit. And he's dressed <laughs> in a Pied Piper top. <laughs> yes, he's got his preposterous Errol, hat. Errol yeah. Flynn
0: meets the yeah. Pied Piper. He looks <laughs> and like he's a, a, giant. a logo. He looks like a corporate logo for a restaurant, a Robin Hood themed and restaurant. Just,
1: <laughs> and I was like, the moment I, I just fell asleep, the moment he goes, What do you do? And you're a robber, are you? Excellent, what do
2: you do? morning, oh, you're, you're all, all robbers. you oh, the best, you? Mr. Hood. Jolly good. And you're, a, you're a robber, are you? Jolly good. Uh, 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 and do you enjoy robbing then? Well, it helps pay the rent, sir. Ah, 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 <laughs> ah. You're a
1: robber as well. <laughs> it's just beautifully done, and this is the—you know—this moment. He just—he he just finished Faulty Towers. He's basically the funniest man in the world. Mm. Fact. Yeah. At this point, then you've got—it's a Palin script, and I have to say, some of the script is a bit ufty. The scenes with him and Sissy Spacek, I could easily delete. The running yeah. gag about the truss—well, they were added is.
0: in. I didn't realize this. He was really? supposed to be playing Robin Hood. And they said, we need Cleese because he's the funniest man in the world. He's done 40 Towers, Life of Brian had been a big hit. So to get the money in, this, he said, I'll put Cleese in it. As soon as he put Cleese in it, he lost the part of Robin Hood, which would have been not as funny, but good. Could say, he's good at sort of aldermen and mayors yeah, and things. Yeah. So he said, I had to write very, very quickly a scene that I could be in because they said... We want as many Pythons in it as possible, and Palin went, well, the other guys aren't going to agree to be in it. And Terry didn't want to be in it. And Terry Jones didn't want to be in it. So he said he wrote the thing in because again, otherwise the money men would say, "Where are the rest of the Pythons?" Mm. So it's, it, that's those scenes with Sissy Spacek feel snap. they hurried,
1: and it's nice to have a linking thing. But so there we go. There's the Python things. You've got three Pythons in it because of course Gilliam he counts. You've got three Pythons in it, and to my money, the top Pythons. No offence, Eric Bitter, bloke. And Terry (laughs) Jones is great, but my favourite Pythons are in it. It's got the classic, as I say, the classic Python thing of history film. And we always love those. You know, when they go modern, it's a bit less fun. And it's got this is my real obsession the classic. I went to Oxford or Cambridge. I can't really write a narrative, so I'll get seven sketches and glue them together like Richard Curtis Richard does. Curtis. Yep, you know, even Life of Brian is a series, yeah, of, yeah, a sketches, series of sketches, and yeah. they're helped by the fact obviously they've got a story to steal.
0: Yeah, yes. I used to watch it and go, I love I loved this film as a kid. I remember making a note to myself when I watched it on VHS, aged about 10 or 11. I made a note saying, When grown ups say what films I liked as a kid when they say you liked The Wizard of Oz, remember you fucking hated The Wizard of Oz. And the only kids' film you really liked was Time Bandits. It was right. like a, finally, a kids' film that gets kids' stuff. But I'm loving it as a kid, but also being aware it was a bunch of sketches. And when I read reviews of it, to be aware that I was meant to think it was a bit of a, just a bunch of sketches. And I watched it last night and thought, it's not just a bunch of sketches. It's a bunch of brilliant sketches. Yeah. That's a great way to assemble a film. And if this was a children's book, you'd call it, oh, it's just a bunch of chapters. That's not a criticism you can level at children, because Alice in Wonderland is a bunch of chapters. It's a classic children's structure to do a chapter about Robin Hood and then a chapter about it. It's a fine
1: it structure. It totally works, and it's got, the increase, it's got the framing device of the parents. It's got the increasing jeopardy. It's got the descent into darkness. Yep,
0: It's structured really well. There's a and bit where they're jumping from hole to hole, like a kid tells a story, and then, and then, and then. And then suddenly in the forest, and they're running away from... Robin Hood, I think. There's two holes. Hmm. And structurally, as a writer, you go, that's a great idea. If they keep, if it's on rails, separate your heroes. Suddenly the story seems to sort of branch out into a web. And that's when the story sort of kicks in and he ends up with Sean Connery in the desert. It's brilliant.
1: It's entirely remarkable in every way, and I like the fact that you've got, as you say, and it's a great showcase for Gilliam because he show, he's already shown with Jabberwocky, which is a mess but fun. That he can, and with Holy Grail, that he can do dirty Gilliam. Yeah, <laughs> he can do shit smeared peasants. He can do peasants throwing shit until the cows come home, all yeah. wearing cowls on the head. People with stuff dangling off. People and- with stuff dangling, <laughs> but with Napoleon sequence, he's previewing Munchausen. Yep. That's and such a good sequence. We're talking about people Palin could have played. Ian Holm. So was that weird thing with Python films. When they do a film for someone else, you think, oh, I wish my Terry jo, I wish Michael Palin. While Ian Holm is great, Michael Palin would have been an amazing Napoleon.
0: You can hear him yeah. right. He said that about Ripping Arms. He said the biggest problem with Ripping Arms is it was the Michael Palin TV show he'd been given the money for. And every time he wrote a great character, you can see he sat over the typewriter making up these voices. He said, I wasn't allowed to play those side characters. I had to be the, the good-looking lead. And in all Palin scripts Palin hasn't written enough script. There's three films he's written. He hasn't written enough. And when he writes, he writes in his voice for his characters. And you're right. You wish they were all Michael Palin.
1: I mean, it's a problem. It's an interesting. It's a Python problem. Apart from the, you know, the lack of women, right on. But also the fact that they played everything. I mean, I interviewed Victoria Wood once, and you know, I said, "Why do you use the same people?" And she basically said, "You get good actors. You hang on to them." Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's why she had a stable of actors because she wasn't mad. People who can do it. People who can do it. People who got who could hear her voice. And with Python, particularly with old theatricals, I think in Palin's Diaries is a bit he's doing Jabberwocky and Max Wall is just in another world, not a nice man. You know, Milligan was great. It was obviously Milligan's going to like Python because they're his children mm. and, you know, <laughs> they worship the ground he walks on. But so in Time Bandits, you've got Ian Holm who's not bad and it's one of the great scenes. The the classic Python thing of taking one irrelevant aspect of someone's personality, yeah. that <laughs> yeah. they are short, and spinning it into a massive, you're crowding me, move away. You Alexander's on one side, great,
0: him on the other, is like big at the bottom of a bloody well. It's a
1: great lie <laughs> Alexander's a great little man, all these lines.
0: You are the best thing to happen to me,
2: since it's all combined. You know, I come to conquer Italy, because I thought they were all small, you know, I hear there was really tiny guys. Sir, I really think there are more important things. Shut up! Don't you dare to tell me my business!
1: And the genius plot idea that why would Napoleon want to f- be friends with some dwarves? <laughs> because they're short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have some course. new
0: generals for a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm <laughs> going to sit for a bit. I had not even <laughs> noticed. to well, not forever. That would be ridiculous. We'd lose the war, but maybe for a day. <laughs> the, they're all wearing... The, the generals are then thrown outside the castle and they're all wearing their pants. And I thought... I, for a minute, I thought, oh, are the time bandits wearing little generals' costumes. And then as they walk out, you realise, they're not. They're wearing big generals' yeah. costumes. <laughs> and the hands are dragging on the ground.
1: It's beautiful. And then and all the different styles. And then the Agamemnon sequence. And there's the thing that everybody who knows the film knows is the line in the script. Agamemnon takes off his helmet to reveal an actor of cheaper stature than Sean Connery or someone <laughs> we can afford. And Sean Connery liked it. yeah. And, and it's that moment, even though you know it's going to be him, you're like, Fuck me, it's James Bond. I don't care what else he's been in. Fuck yeah. me, yeah, it's James Bond and when you're looking King Agamemnon. You're
0: looking for a father figure. The point that that brilliant... I think that is a properly the heart of the film. That's the reason you've got Palin in, because he understands character and emotion better than, than Gilliam does. Gilliam's sort of vaguely romantic. Mm. But Palin's got character nailed. That's why he's been hired. And the idea that Kevin's looking for a father figure, and he dropped, and he's an adventurous little boy who's got a wild imagination, and you make James Bond his dad. And, and Sean Connery's face, he's such a good surrogate dad in that.
1: He's wonderful in it. And the way it's done, you know, it's got the undercurrent of Greek myth, which none of us can be bothered to look up. Yeah. But you know that Agamemnon is troubled. You know that he, things are going wrong in his life. He's attracted to Kevin as well. It works so... And the end, which apparently oh, was God. Connery's idea, which just makes me sad now. Just when he takes... It's, he's the fireman. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, he can't go off and live with him. But you slightly hope... Well, he's around. He that, saves the boy's life, yeah. doesn't he, in the closing minutes? So in the, the, every
0: way. The two endings that Connery's sort of in charge of, one is the, when they leave Greece and the, the, the dwarves rescue It's a lovely, dramatic irony that the dwarves the rescue wrong, him.
1: The bad rescue. Rescue
0: him for the life that would have made his life better. I mean, yeah. a, as a piece of writing, that sequence in the middle with, with Agamemnon being a surrogate father for Kevin, and it's very delicately... Uh, hinted at that there's bad things in the court and the queen's a bad queen. Done with about two looks and no lines, you know yeah. that he's trying to save his court from being taken over by an evil queen. Brilliant fairy tale storytelling. And then at the end, as the dwarfs take him away, there's a slow pullback shot and and Agamemnon Connery spots that Kevin's disappeared and he's not coming back. There's a magic trick that's actually stolen his son. And Connery stands up and at a distance in a long shot you see his shoulders sag mm. and all this sadness come onto this. you think He's a really good actor. And apparently he was having I read somewhere that he was trouble he was regretting being a bad father to his kids at the time. And he brought some of that to the thing, and you think there was all this stuff about as there should be in all good family films, stuff about family, about being a good dad, being a bad dad, and that Kevin's mum and dad are sort of narcissistic and obsessed with technology and gadgets and can't see their son.
1: That for me is one of the bits that I liked at the time, but it's that's the kind of tiresome python. hatred of people who aren't as middle class as they are or <laughs> differently I mean, my, middle class. differently middle I mean my dad was an accountant so every time I watched the you know, 1948 show and that's like oh great accountants so much more important than people who went to stuffing Oxbridge oh well they're scum accountants helping people out with their finances and stuff I'd be much better off being rude to Miriam Margolis and smoking <laughs> or whatever it is you do. I once did a show, I'm doing my show because I am Barry Cryer, it was a really not great show, it was Prince Charles's 60th, and it was, a pan, it was a variety show at a panto theatre, John Cleese was the host, and so it was like, oh my god, I'm working with John Cleese, this is the best thing ever, and then the producer phoned up and said, you know, John's a bit, he's a bit nervy at the moment, he's going through an expensive divorce with his American wife, and so I had to phone him up, I'm like, okay, I've got to phone him up and reassure him. So we had a chat, and I said, oh, I'm getting divorced. I'm an American at the moment, if that's any consolation. <laughs> <laughs> so he basically said, hey, is she taking you for 12 million quid? I'm like, OK. So it's not quite that bad, although it was close. And um, then they said, John really needs someone to be with him. Oh, I could do that. I said, no, someone he knows. So I had to phone up Barry Cryer. And you know when they put, a, they put in a, a puppy with a horse to keep it? So <laughs> like Barry was the puppy. <clears throat> so basically, Barry came down to the recording and just sat with John Cleese for two hours and just reminisced. And then came out again. And Eric Idle was there. And he was, Barry introduced me. And all the time, Barry's saying, it's David. He's Eric Idle just stared at me like a cunt. So, <laughs> and then it just got even better. The, Miriam Margolis was in it. And if you know your Python law, you know that Miriam Margolis, I think I'm just talking to the world now. I feel like Chamberlain. Um, <laughs> you know that we are now at war. With so, Miriam Margolis. Mar- Mar- <laughs> Mar- <laughs> as a consequence. But so basically, she was in the footlights and she hated them all because, you know, they were scared of women. They were certainly scared of her because she's scary, yeah. but she's brilliant. And she has nothing but disdain for them. And she was in the show and she just basically was sat there and she was farting, which she's famous for. She yeah. just keeps going around farting. Sorry, I farted. I do it a lot. <laughs> Every time I've met someone who's Miriam Margolis, <laughs> she Mar- says, and then she farted. Anyway. So she's farting. She's talking to me, and like, oh, yeah, John's here. And she's like, yeah, he hasn't spoken to me. So it never ends, these wars. Wow. And I feel I've strayed a little. But, yeah, <laughs> the, the Python kind of disdain for, you know, suburban people with their colour tellies and their game yeah. shows is not my favourite thing. But the performances by Blokey and Thingy are great. The poison joint, you know, yeah. the, the blackened microwave. Yeah. it's And, of course the world's first Easter egg, which is that all the toys on Kevin's floor yep. turn up in the final battle. Yeah, yep. it's brilliant. Which the Lego...
0: It's, there's a really good shot of the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness where you're looking across Lego bricks. Yeah, that's right. And it's almost great... the first hint. You go, they really put it front and centre that this is... Yeah, it's... it's. I think it's in Alice with the Looking Glass where she's playing cards or chess pieces and they turn up in the yeah. fantasy. It's, it's it's a borrowed trope that the... But it's, is it really? really it's like it's so well
1: done. It's really common trope now, the things... The clue trope is really yeah. big now. It's mm. probably one of the first things that ever did that.
0: One of the things that struck me for the first time, again, watching this last night, which makes it more delightful for me, was that that thing about disdain for suburbia and, and sort of uh, that that kind of class. And it's a snodgrass. It's a Lennon yeah. hating the snodgrasses thing. Is that this is really a Beetle Python movie because George Harrison's put the money up for it. It's the first thing he's done when he's got his company. I looked at it and went, God, this is so what, McCartney wanted magical mystery to her to be. Yeah. Or it's very yellow submarine, there's blue meanies, and they are basically the forces of capitalism and the breadheads, and it really feels like it's absolutely shot through with that back end of the sixties and hating money and acquisition at a point just before that would have become embarrassing. It's the last gasp of like a sixties counterculture, Gilliam-y, beatles y yeah, the baddies Bobby. are all money. <laughs>
1: also right that it's all it is about money but also it is that thing you mentioned Alice it is that thing of just children's rope the romance of the imagination which is Disney mm. in the 80s and 90s it's like you'd rather be a kid with his silly head in a silly book yeah it's uh, Matilda
0: it's Roald Dahl it's it's, this and is, it's
1: fantastic
0: there's a funny thing I noticed as well know, in a there was a big fuss about the ending because his parents both get exploded and he's left on his own as an his awful. parents die yeah there's a big Long enough to do They are spoilers. killed by capitalism. Yeah. And they're so funny. selfish, they explode. <laughs> yeah. And there's a brilliant thing. And I watched that as a kid going, This is pretty good. This is pretty. Su- I watched it on my own, didn't watch it on my dad and my mum watched it. This is pretty naughty. And there's a shock that, you, that people complain and said, You can't do that in a kid's film. I think you do at the beginning of most kids' films. You kill the parents mm. in the first act of all role Dahls. They're always orphans. But the great thing about this is you learn why it's good that a kid's on his own. Because the whole film is about how his parents aren't looking after him. And at the end of it, you go, oh, it'd be terrible if he's not looked after by those people who weren't there anyway. It's a very subversive end to a kid's film in that it tells you the truth of all fairy stories, which is that the parents won't save you.
2: Mum! Dad! It's evil! Don't touch it!
1: A sequel to Time Bandits, while appalling and should never happen, would be really interesting because I would cast it a bit like Hook, only good with with that kid, Craig Warner, who, of course, as we know, went on to be the keyboard player with these Animal Men, yeah, yeah which was he... the best pop fact I discovered <laughs> last night for the first time, having had this film as my favourite since 1981.
2: His gorgeous Kevin. blue eyes—he, you can't take your eyes off him when he's on screen, can he's you? He's
1: great. He just seems to have exactly Terrific. the right kind of. I'm. There's nothing weird about my life.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was to be a sequel, oh. right? Terry Gilliam wanted to make a sequel to Time Bandits, but because in fairly short order, David Rappaport and Jack Purvis both died, he abandoned the idea. Oh, that's
1: right, yeah. I mean, I would do it, basically, he'd be older. Yeah he'd be, the classic way of doing it is that he'd be a bit down and out, you know, his life had gone horribly wrong. Yeah. And then he discovers that world again.
2: Um, Warnock reminded me, uh, very striking, just a, a straightforward visual. At the, at the front of the film, he's a kid in a dressing gown being sent through space and time. Yeah. And I went, it's hitchhikers. It's very it's little 10. hitchhikers, isn't it?
1: Little, I'm sure that's at the back of their mind. It, I don't it's, think it's a well, reference. Well,
2: well Terry... Uh, Terry Jones, I think, or was it Terry Gilliam was talking to um, Douglas Adams about making a film of Hitchhikers at the time. I think it was Terry Jones, so it was obviously in the air. It's
0: got these nods to other uh, bits of British culture, which again makes it lovely. It's it's a lovely mishmash of things visually. and things. Everyone's grabbing for whatever's to hand, because they've got ten minutes to make it. Quick, assemble all your favourite ideas. Oh
1: God, sorry, because it's worth doing the sequence. We haven't missed, we haven't mentioned the greatest sequence of all time, which is Peter Vaughan! Peter oh. fucking Vaughan from oh. Game of Thrones and Porridge. Peter Vaughan, one of the all-time great, underrated, but great comic <laughs> actors, as an ogre with Catherine Hellman from Soap and Brazil. And having someone from Soap in it and someone from Porridge will be the equivalent of having someone from Soap and Porridge in something now. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant comic genius. Yeah. It's a great
0: sequence. That's and also, then- it's, it's a sketch as well. The thing that, oh God, whenever you watch sketch movies, you watch Bedazzled, which is a sketch mm. movie that I, I like watch a lot. That sometimes. But the sketches are too long. And in this, I kept being stunned watching again that all the sketches get in and get out really fast. There's lots of them. But you're, you get into Napoleon and you're into them being his generals within a couple of minutes. And you're into the ogre and you know he's got a bad back. And they're playing the sketches at faster than TV sketch pace. They're really good. It's, it's lean, but
2: the thing is, it's also, it's nearly two hours long, the film, isn't it? So Lots the of stuff.
1: The, the, the I'd never speed noticed at
2: which it. No, exactly. I, I didn't notice that either. But I then looked at it at the end and went, one hour 56. Right. Wow.
0: You that went by in. quickly. But when you get a sketch like you go, it's an ogre with a bad back. And the trick is they're going to cure his bad back and throw him into the sea. And it does that about that fast. But it has the brilliant thing, which is great paling, which is undercut
1: by the fact that his wife is not an idiot. His yeah. wife, who finds him really sexy, wants to eat the dwarves because yeah. she knows what's going on. <gasps> yeah, yeah. So, so there's jeopardy. So it's not just, oh, wouldn't it be quite funny if we did this?
0: Yeah. I mean, eat all of them, every little bit. That means the big pot and the large skewers. <laughs> oh, what shall I do, dear? <laughs> Terrify them. But what about me back? Well, you don't have to jump around. Just shout horribly and... Lear at them, you know, the way you used to. They play all the tricks you can do with it not just being a sequence of sketches. Mm. All the sketches are motivated and you're worried for them when they're properly in danger. He's a proper scary baddie, David Warner.
1: David Warner is just, I mean, I'm reversing my. One of the pythons couldn't have done that. No. It's a classic python speech show me standard trunk dialing. <laughs> what Was it you? Paris? God isn't interested in technology. He knows nothing of the potential of the microchip or the silicon revolution. Look how he spends his time. Forty-three species of parrots, Nipples for men. Slugs. Slugs! He created slugs. They can't hear. They can't speak. They can't operate machinery. If I were creating a world, I wouldn't mess about with butterflies and daffodils. I would have started with lasers. Eight o'clock, day one. Sorry. It's the best argument against God.
2: Do you know who Dennis O'Brien wanted to cast as the evil genius?
1: Burt Reynolds. (laughs) I was going to say, was it someone like Sylvester Stallone? Because it always is.
2: Un-fucking-believable. One of the things he suggested when he read the script for Time Bandits was he said to Terry Gilliam, listen, maybe we could get some writers in.
1: Oh, God. Always a good line. Yeah. (laughs) So David Warner is brilliant. And I remember reading a feature about the making of Time Bandits in 1981 in the face wow (laughs) thing. And all these things that I remember, like the the script direction about Sean Connery, and it also said, Terry Gilliam was going, I mean, David Warner's blind, so he had vertigo. And for years, I I thought he meant this literally. Uh, I was (laughs) marvelling at the performance, but it just meant that he had very bad eyesight and couldn't climb stairs. He's strapped into
0: that costume, and it's very elaborate. Apparently he had to be leaned back on a 45-degree... Bored between shots because he couldn't sit down. Oh, It's right. a proper thing. So he's really uncomfortable, but he's just—I don't think I ever had a nightmare as a kid where the baddie wasn't David Warner. <sighs> he's just—he gets the
1: right balance of not at all frightening and terrifying. I wouldn't show my children that film. It's really scary. And also, just saving it for last because it is a lot, Just the best—the moment when you're writing things, you sit down, and you think, "Who's going to play God?" If you've written God in a script, it's got to be the best moment of your career because you have got to have the best person. And it's really interesting that they chose, given Gilliam's background, given all their background, they chose a pillar of the acting establishment, but also a famous nutter. (laughs) Rafe Richardson was mad as a box of shit. (laughs) He was fucking... There's a brilliant Kenneth Tynan interview with him, him and Gielgud. It's just they're rambling around, talking bollocks, taking the piss. They're like two acid heads disguised as (laughs) actors. The casting of him is just... The bits I could always quote from that film, you know, I'm the supreme being, you know, I'm not entirely stupid.
0: Do you really think I
1: didn't know, sir? I had to have some way of testing my handiwork. I think it turned out rather well, don't you? Hmm? evil turned out rather well mm-hmm.
0: the theology of it is great is you've said that evil is someone obsessed with modern crap and is uh, david warren he's thoroughly evil and when the goody turns up who you think well he'll sort it out he is a deus ex machina he just comes down in the middle of the battle originally apparently sean connery was supposed to be with the greek archers and do a right. proper hero's death at the end and instead of that they kill fidget kill kenny baker and it's a lot of quick rewriting in that last scene, and they bring down a Deus Ex Machina. God appears, sorts it all out, and he's a prick. All of this film is about your parents aren't going to help you. When mom and dad turn up, they're going yeah. to be as bad as you. The little people, the the children, and the dwarves, and the they're the junior members of creation. The dwarves, and they're as good a bunch of people as anyone. It's a very subversive thing for a children's film to tell you that it's all well, Wizard
1: I, of Oz. You don't trust the wizard. See, I mean, I've never watched, not being controversial, I've never watched it as a children's film probably because I wasn't a child when I watched it. You might as well say, why do we have to have evil? Oh, we wouldn't dream of asking a question like that, sir.
2: Yes, why do we have to have evil? Ah, oh. I think it's something to do with free will. Oh.
1: The moment when Kevin says, so what, a, what? why did you create evil? And all dwarves are like, shut up. <laughs> and it's great because they're just like, you know, the part of the state, and God is just, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, free, I don't know, free will, all that sort of. it- Cleese could have played it, but he would have played it far too much like one of his headmasters, whereas yeah. this mm. is...
0: Hey, Palin said it's based on his headmaster, the script, and it's supposed to be like an ineffectual but sort of well-meaning, vague teacher. And there's, there's loads... Palin's... But
1: Richardson makes him scary. Yeah. yeah. You, do you don't know, want well, that man in charge. Do you know 40 Years On, the Alan Bennett play? No. It's where re- you really worth it. It's the best thing he ever did. It's got these great, again, sketches, headmaster's speeches at the start. Mm. the The notion is that Britain is a public school called Albion House... Right. And the word, it's the history of, it's like kunk. It's the history of Britain <coughs> told through a series of sketches right. and malapropisms. And no, but it has a, some of my favourite lines, which is like, I believe it was Baden-Powell who said that a, a, a boy should be u- acceptable at a dance, but invaluable in a shipwreck. You'd be no good at either, Thompson, if you were playing over the hair of the boy in front. See me after.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, obviously, that final scene as well is is a brilliant one for, everything comes up a bit. I mean, for a, a picaresque sketch movie that climax where all the dwarves rush to Kevin's rescue and they all bring different weapons from different yeah. eras together for a big kid on the floor toy battle where you you've got your thunderbird and your batmobile it's that it's a lovely lego dimensions mashup uh thing which is great fun is where all the characters that they've got for these six Time Bandits. You get to see how good some of the actors are, mm. and the big revelation is David Rappaport is the leader. Randall, with the flying helmet on, probably regarded as the best actor of his generation of limited stature, mm. and he is absolutely thrashing. He's a star. But he's thrashing this film by Jack Purvis as Wally, whose best mate Fidget Kenny Baker R two D two gets killed at the end. It's yeah, the sacrifice. Brilliant. And Gilliam said, I wanted to kill his double act partner because they were a double act, Kenny Baker and Jack Purvis, on the stage. Killed his double act partner. They were called the Minitones or something, weren't they, I think? God, Jack Purvis's face, the acting. He is such a good actor. Yeah. And it's just... Gilliam said that never before had dwarves been allowed to not have Womble costumes on so you can see their faces. Yeah. And he he only cast them because he wanted someone who'd be in the frame the same height as a child. So it's just a director's decision. But because he hasn't noticed that they're all supposed to just be circus turns... He lets them all act. Jack Purvis doesn't
2: have a Wikipedia entry, which is a fucking disgrace. So, someone needs to do that. Someone
1: needs to get around to that. Because also great. is that these are, you know, they're men, obviously, but they're men of a certain age. They've been through the fucking mill. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they've got good
0: faces. They've got war torn faces. Yeah. Yeah. They're not kids. He's got a bunch of grown ups who are his height, which is, again, it's a subversive thing to tell a kid that there are grown ups who are also small. And also, people overlook and don't listen to properly. It gives him these equal gang. There's a brilliant thing. I don't know who came up with this. Someone got this right, and they said that the thing no one ever mentions in Time Man is there are six dwarves, and there were six pythons, and you can fit them over the top of them.
2: Yeah, it's in one of the books. Randall it's, it's is Cleese. Robert Hewison, actually. Is Ro- and Robert oh, Hewison God. is one of Michael Palin's oldest friends, so I would suggest that this theory has some good credence.
0: To we'll do it. it. Okay, Randall, which is David Rappaport, is Cleese. Fidget, the nice one, Kenny Baker, who's nice to, to Kevin and is very, very soft and silly, is Palin. Wally, who's the passionate one, who, who's upset that Fidget dies, is Terry Jones. And he's constantly arguing with Randall, the Cleese one. And then you've got uh, Strutter is Eric Idle. Vermin, the disgusting one, is, is Gilliam. And Og, who doesn't say anything and turns into a pig, is Graham Chapman. <laughs> is I that you- what happened? Yeah, it's just, oh God. But once you work that out and you see that that fight that goes all the way through between who's the leader, between Jones and the the Cleese character, and it it comes to a head in that brilliant, written-in-a-hurry scene on the beach where they smash the invisible barrier which has got that great line
2: oh so that's what an invisible barrier looks like <laughs> great line.
0: and they're on that because it was to cover a fudge they couldn't get two scenes yeah. to work together so they put them uh, great again a writer's solution they said we can't get them from a to b and palin or gilliam suggested the writer's solution of, well what if they're already there so Lovely. they're already there and they can't see it so, but they have a fight on the beach and it was written because they've been working for a while to be based on the fact that they were all getting pissed off with david Rappaport right. being the leader and it's are pure they're pissed off with Cleese lording it over them
1: i would like to make a special case for one of my favorite moments that i reenact with my children because they can be held upside down <laughs> which is the fantastic <laughs> moment when the dwarves meet the merry men yeah it's hilarious, mm. and Rappaport is upside down i think in a branch or parachute yeah. webbing and he is talking to one of the thugs <laughs> and it's like are you villains? The worst. they <laughs> rough. Kill anyone, and it's a brilliant face-off, literally, because they are just on equal terms. <laughs> he's upside both down, comic baddies. Rappaport's upside down. The villain. This is going so well on the tape. My hands here, but yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's it's the moment I will reenact with my children by just growling at them.
0: <laughs> he's growling. He's a he's a star. He's the and, first name on
2: the credit roll at the end, really? isn't he? Yeah, David Rappaport. He's the star yeah. of the film. He really
0: yeah, is. He, he runs it. He's, he's up. He's up there, and he's. His relationship with that team is really funny because they don't. There's the, there's the great unseen extra time bandit horse flesh.
1: Apparently, you can see him in a reflection. Can in, you? In the bowl when they look in.
0: Oh, that's. When
1: true. David Warner's looking into the bowl.
0: Because he's the one who's died and they're blaming each other for who killed the seventh time bandit. And there's a nice thing that they've replaced one of them with Kevin. Yeah. There's a missing member of the team and Kevin comes in as the extra seventh time bandit. And they're all resenting the fact that Randall's taken over, that Rappaport's taken over. And it's just about the dynamic of a team. they are all got equal stature. And it's just brilliant to watch a film where the kid and the grown-ups are all equal stature.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the opposite of his home
1: life, isn't it?
0: Yeah, where he's just ignored. Yeah. He's overlooked by people who are taller than him. Yeah. They can't see him. And it's what a powerful thing to tell kids.
1: I mean, it's Alice as well, that she goes into a world where Everyone is mental, but they treat her as an equal because they're all mad. Yes. We're all mad here. If you can be friends with a caterpillar, then you can be friends with a small girl. Yeah. When you start writing stuff, the joke that you always the gag structure that you always use, which is shit, because it's not based on anything but camera movement, is pull back to reveal. Yeah. And this has got the only ever good, what could possibly go wrong, pull back to reveal, they're on the Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only time that joke it's has ever really worked. It's done really well, isn't it? And yeah, they're all sat around, luxury. It is like literally man walks past holding a life And it's a life belt. So it's It's even a better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I was going to say this, because one of the reasons I think this film works is its speed. Things in it happen fast it was written fast, made fast. Yeah. No one's had enough time to, to fuck it up. The best demonstration, because Gilliam's someone who from this point on becomes famous for things being hard to make. Yeah. Everything he does, there's a battle. He's fighting, he's fighting. And Harrison said of him, he said, you're like Lennon, you're stubborn. And Gilliam took it as a huge compliment. I'm assuming it was an insult saying that you're not, you're immovable. And this film feels easy and light because everyone's moving fast. And I think as a, as an, if you're talking about it as an example of writing a funny film, its likeness, I think, comes from them doing it in a hurry.
1: Well, it's, I mean, because Gilliam's background was, of course, Python and the early Python films, he is one of those people, like it or not, that he's better with strictures. Yeah. That he yeah. made Jabberwocky and Brian and all those films, well, not Brian, but all the others, on a low budget and they look amazing. <laughs> he's a big, influential director. Apparently, then,
0: Borman's Excalibur, he showed them Holy Grail and said, make that, it look like that. And the, the Rag, when they think it's Raglan Castle they use for Napoleon's siege, I've never seen a Napoleonic siege look that good. And he must have done it. It's just some fires in windows. He must have done
1: it for a pound. Yeah. But when you get to, I mean, when you get to things like Munchausen, it's gorgeous. But it's an empty corset. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. and there's no reason.
0: It's overthought. Yeah. And he's a he's an animator, so he's used to having control at tiny levels of detail and doing things slowly. Yeah. But I think what's amazingly exciting is how good he is at speed and how good the script is that Palin's written with a gun to his head at enormous speed.
2: Yeah, well, the other film that that Gilliam does like that is The Fisher King, where he's basically hired by the studio system. He's given a script that's been written by a very good writer, and they just say, go and shoot it. This is the budget. And he goes and does it, and he turns in a fucking terrific film. It's probably his other great great. film. I I didn't know he'd not written it. That's no, the Richard the uh, oh, okay, I apologize.
1: And, um, yeah, I mean, let's have a And bit he gets of... to repeat the shot of the horse coming out of the wardrobe, which happens yeah, in yeah, The Fisher yeah, King, yeah. doesn't it? Which <laughs> yeah. is uh, fantastic. And let's also not forget Twelve Monkeys, which isn't a brilliant... It is almost a brilliant film. Mm. Yeah. But it's it looks great. It's basically post-apocalyptic time bandits. Yeah. Whatever I, that I means. Find,
0: I find Gilliam is someone I absolutely love. I think he's great. He's a force for good. I met him once, and he was just completely charming, lovely bloke, really enthusiastic. He's great. I love his films. But sometimes I find them heavy going to watch. I go, Shall I watch that again? Go, It'll be beautiful, but I'll feel every day of the battle you had to make this. Yeah. And Time Bandits, I've seen about a billion times because I find it easy to watch because it's just light.
1: And also, it's one of those things, it's like the Ruttles. The Ruttles were the better than the Beatles in one di- <laughs> They are in one dimension. The Ruttles are everything you like about the Beatles without the shit. Time Bandits is the best Monty Python film. Fact. <laughs>
0: What's the fastest you've been forced to write something that's turned out really good? Oh,
1: God. Last year, I was really skint and quite depressed, and I had an idea for a horror novel, and I wrote it in 10 weeks. So that's quite good for me. I wrote 10,000 words a week. Because it was a horror novel, it was a Stephen King pastiche, and there was no point effing around, because I just thought, it's going to be a fast book. And it was so easy. Because I had really? a beginning and a middle and an end. I knew exactly what was going to happen to everybody. And the trick with this as well, I'm sure you know this, is be someone. So I said, I'm, tonight I'm going to be Richard Backman, you know, the other yeah, Stephen yeah. King. I'm going to be Richard Backman and write a Stephen King knockoff. And once you do that, you put all moral qualms aside. This is like this. Who cares? Richard Backman wouldn't care.
0: You get confidence. It is why the Beatles made Sergeant Pepper. Let's pretend yeah. to be a psychedelic band. It's easier to be Sergeant Pepper than it is to be the Beatles.
1: It's a great, I mean, it's a great writing tip. If you're writing something, don't be the character in it. You know, don't be David Brent. Be whoever would write the office. Yeah. yeah. If you think it's a, if you think it's a Gary Shandling show, be Gary Shandling writing the office. Because
0: you'll get it wrong. It won't ever turn out to be a rip-off. You'll get because you're you. Yeah. And obviously because you're relaxed as well, you'll probably be more you than you would be if you were trying to be you. Yeah. You're the, relaxing into your own habits and ticks, so the impression you do won't be unless you're a really adept pasticheur. You'll get things wrong
1: because ev- everyone knows the Paul McCartney yesterday story of the scrambled eggs one. Yeah. But the other story is the other reason he didn't want to show it. To he said, "I thought it sounded like the ink spots." And nobody in the world has ever said, Whoa, the Ink Spots have got a new single out. (laughs) (laughs) Ba boom.
0: What you think it sounds like isn't what just don't tell anyone who you're pretending to be. Yeah, so
1: many times it's like, oh god, when David Bowie brought out Tonight, which is not a great record, and just now sounds like a load of clattering eighties drums, he Mm -hmm. said, Yeah, I'll be listening to a load of forties R and B. It's like, and? Yeah. (laughs) Then what did you do? What what a drum machine. Talk pretty, let's just talk just for the hell of it, if we can, because I really like dog in Python. Solo, because I'm obsessed with solo Beatles, and let's just do the comparison. You know, they yeah. easily, Basically, I, I had a great moment when I was about 16. i just discovered the Beatles. Wrong generation for that, not before the anthology or, you know, what, shouldn't yeah. be then, shouldn't be then. And watching Top of the Pops, and that suddenly came to me, watching Wings doing With a Little Luck. This is the same Paul McCartney. (laughs) This is the same man who was in the... They're not... The Beatles weren't a thing on a shelf in the old days. They're still... They were alive. Yeah, that glorious thing of basically loving ripping yarns, which I love more than Python because it was more accessible. Faulty Towers too. Yeah. yeah, And Rotten Weekend, which was always a bit disappointing because it was like a low wattage Python, was much more like Python. I'd love to have been in those rooms when somebody came in with a six-hander <laughs> and said, right. And you know that basically everyone's going, all right, so Terry's going to be the woman, John's going to... And just the sorting out of parts. Yeah. Because Rydell, right, it's easy. I'll be the man talking and, you know, Michael, you'll be behind the counter. <laughs> Will that be all, sir. Pound of sausages.
0: Palin used to come in in a brown coat. That was his, his, his
1: outfit. <laughs> I just, it's really weird that the hinge points of comedy, listening to the amnesty albums their majesty's pleasure one that you've got one pleasure at her majesties and it just opens with Cleese saying i wish to register a complaint and the room goes mad absolutely oh, and then fantastic. two years later Alexi sale comes on he just goes i wish to register a fucking complaint <laughs> fuck off <laughs> And the room goes mad, and everything's changed. We've gone off this. There's a family guy moment when Meg, the daughter who they all hate, is punished by being tied up and made to watch Monty Python. (laughs) And she says something like, it's not even the good episodes from the compilations. (laughs) And there was a moment when Nickelodeon showed them in the 90s, and I pretty much knew Python from the greatest moments. And you're watching it thinking, how many sketches with Graham Chapman as a general in a tutu can one person write? They're <laughs> endless. There's so much terrible Python. Because, you know, there's so much terrible anything in a... 26, well, the, ar- the,
2: of- the argument for that is that there were a there were forty five episodes of it, and that's yeah.
1: a lot of material.
2: B, they were trying so many different things that of course it's not always going to succeed yeah. because they did a lot of things very differently or for the first time or whatever. You know, what now? What is that sketch when it's a it's an interview program and the interviewer says to Graham Chapman who is playing the minister but he's in a ball gown, um, asks him a question. He says, "I'd like to answer this question in two ways, if I may. First in my normal voice, and then in a sort of silly high pitched." <laughs> <laughs> and he answers. It starts answering the question and while they're doing that the uh, the voiceover comes on saying well the minister is wearing striking pink organza <laughs> and you've got to go where the fuck's this sketch going apart from the fact that I think the other guest on there is a pool of brown liquid isn't yeah. it <laughs> so yeah. when you're trying that many things yeah. Yeah,
0: of course you're going to fail I th- I, I, you, you said something really interesting earlier on which you said that Python is very often best enjoyed on the other side of it is Beth enjoyed having seen it rather yeah, than seeing uh,
1: it's it it's the same thing I had with Spinal Tap I watched Spinal Tap okay it's Quite accurate, and then people started going, oh, I'll turn it up to 11. I was a little man, and then I started to find it funny. Yeah, and a lot of Python for some, because
0: it needs processed because I, I was so obsessed while watching Python when I was learning how to write. Hmm. So you sort of absorb the rhythms of it, and by doing that, by le- it's like learning a song, you learn it by heart, and you learn the chords, you get finger finger patterns and muscle memory and things. So now when I watch it, I find it very hard to watch it as a piece of comedy. I watch it as almost like revisiting an old school lesson or something. But Mm. its familiarity is 50% of what I'm delighting in. And it's very odd to imagine, I think even watching it when when I first watched them, I'd watch each episode and go, "That's all right. And only watching it again would I start to spot the... Mm the resonances and the performances and the the small stuff and then the jokes oddly sort of bubbled up underneath that I think it was repeated watching I think there's also
1: the structure I love that story the you know when they're sitting down and watching Spike Milligan and Jones phones up Palin and says he's fucking done it (laughs) yeah and the idea that there was this goal this grail if you will Mm. this goal that they had to create this thing and they didn't know what it was but they knew what it wasn't, because they knew yeah. it wasn't going to be, and oh, that shouldn't have had the veal. I mean, that lovely Python yeah. sketch, which has actually got, and now the punchline. Yeah. Yes, And the guy say, good job I didn't ask for the veal, whatever. But yeah. The,
0: what, they do had do this- what do you do if you smash the set up? If you've got the Lego set, what happens you throw it at the floor? Now what do you build with those bits? And sometimes they're not building anything very good with the bits, and sometimes they're building something amazing with
1: it. This is why, my real reason, my real hatred of Not The Nine O'clock News, was that I thought we'd gone into space... You know, we'd had Python, we'd had Milligan, we'd had The Goons, we had Mel Brooks, we had new comedy. And then suddenly it's like, see, a policeman. Hello, punchline. I'm actually a policeman, although I sound like a vandal. And it's just classic sketches were about... And then they had the nerve to criticise the two Ronnies for basically doing what they did, only not going to university. LAUGHTER
0: well, it is a crime. Well, it was a crime then? Is it, it was still a crime?
1: crime, yeah. Not going to university, is it
2: yeah, still? Yeah, you
1: know, because basically anyone could go to university in those days. You've got a million quid from the Labour government. You went to university <laughs> and you had gay sex with women. Yeah. <laughs> we all did it. And then we turned around and we were rude to our parents who were doing our laundry, which we all took back home at the end of term. <laughs>
2: I'd like to mention the music for this uh, film because it's a very good score and I'm surprised that Mike Moran didn't score any Python films, actually. Because he's done a great job here. It's a really zingy, lively, oxygenated score. Because
0: it was supposed to be... A, Dennis O'Brien said, we'll get loads of Harrison songs into it and make it a musical. And Harrison and Gilliam That's had to go... Another
2: brilliant ideas. Harrison yeah. and
0: Gilliam had to go, so I just going, I don't want it to be... Uh, Gilliam says, I don't want it to be <laughs> hi-ho, hi-ho. I know <laughs> what you're thinking. <laughs> oh, so, God, of so course, So at the end, yeah. all you end up with is that lovely it dream away the Harrison yeah. song at the end which is that's a great song there's, there's he's snide about Gilliam in the lyrics yeah yeah fed up with him but yeah uh,
2: I wondered what else Mike Moran had done so I looked it up and the answer is he wrote the theme tune to Taggart, and he co-wrote the snot rap
1: <laughs> wow, wow. Sid Snot I thought he was funny, but it's like which came first, him or Gizzard Puke? Because that is just lazy characters. They're the same yeah, why, character. Why were
2: they why were there two?
1: I think because he came up with Sid Snot and then he thought he'd have a punk. <laughs> You've but he couldn't think of anything. God. Yeah. Because <laughs> they are the same. It's so like if you were making a movie, the Kenny if I was doing that Kenny Everett biopic, I'd be going, okay, I have one condition that you merge Sid Snot and Gizzard Puke into one character, It can be a composite character in case they sue. <laughs> they never did a scene together. I'm being quite serious about this, but they never did a, a dual camera scene together. Gives said it's not What a waste of
0: script that was. Team up, Titanic, another, another Barry Cry team classic. This is, the, this is the Avengers, <laughs> Kenny Everett <laughs> Infinity War, <laughs> <laughs> with all Kenny Everett's characters together. That's, that's <laughs> what we're waiting for. And I, I would
1: so watch that.
0: <laughs> I think we should say thank you very much for bringing in time, man. It's David Court. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>